Well, good morning, First Baptist. Please find your seats. Let's, uh, let's get ready. Welcome again. I'm very thankful that you're all here with us today. And we are in a Bible study in the book of Romans. We just started. We're in chapter number one. We're going to wrap up chapter number one today. And so if you have your Bibles, Romans would be a good place to get started and find it. Uh, you see we have this mirror up here. If you were with us last week, we, we broke the mirror symbolic. Well, we literally broke it, but to be symbolic in its meaning, you understand people think break a mirror seven years bad luck. And I introduced to you that what we're going to do for the next seven weeks is enter into seven weeks of bad news. And uh, so this is week number two. Hang in there, you know, only five more. And then we'll get to a whole bunch of really good news, okay? But for the next, uh, this week and the next five weeks, we're going to have some bad news. And mainly because the, the theme of the book of Romans, as we saw in the introduction, is all about God's righteousness. And it's manifest and described in many different ways throughout the whole book. And uh, it starts out in chapters 1, 2, and 3, really emphasizing man's lack of righteousness, man's sinfulness. And so, you know, talking about our sin and how bad we are, you know, that's never good news. And so we thought that this would be a good way to just kind of symbolize that. And we're kind of just talking about this series, calling it broken, uh, because man in his natural state is just broken. And in fact, we're irreparably broken to the point similar to this mirror. You, you, uh, you can't fix the mirror. You can't, if you could find all the pieces and glue them back in, it wouldn't give you the right image. What you need is a new mirror, okay? And what we need in Jesus Christ is a new life. He needs to make us new. Now, that's God's specialty, so that's good news. And he loves to do that in our lives. But that really is what um, we're going to be talking about. Now, one of the things that we like to think about when we think about the goodness of the Lord is that we'll always typically come back to some sort of a statement like this. Well, hey, as long as you're still breathing, I mean, you've got a chance. God's not going to give up on you, right? And, and we think of that. But really today, um, what we're going to talk about is that there actually are some circumstances that God will give up on you. And you think, really? That sounds weird. You say, no, we're going to see today, and literally that's the title of our message, when God gives up on you. Um, I'm glad y'all came to church. Like I said, this doesn't sound like good news. <laughs> I realize that. But we're going to understand what God's trying to say, and it will help us if our hearts and our minds are open to what he would have for us. And you know what? Uh, again, similar to the mirror, I mean, if our life is depicted by this mirror, and it's broken and it's messed up, um, you know, God wants desperately to, to fix us. He really does. And, and there's only really one core reason why God won't do it. And, and that reason is simply if we, in our free will, tell God, no thanks, I'm just fine, leave me alone. And, and in, in that case, the Lord will leave you alone. And, and that's really not what you want, but that is kind of how it works. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see these circumstances as we come through. Before we even read this time, let's just pray, and then we'll read, and then we'll start talking. How about that? Let's pray. So Heavenly Fathers, we come before your word today. Our desire is, Lord, that you would speak to us. We desire that you would take your holy word and that you would communicate to our hearts and our souls and our minds your truth. Uh, Lord, we're, we're an open book. Uh, thank you for the time of worship. I pray that it would be acceptable in your sight, and I pray that as our hearts have been prepared that we would now just settle into a time of, of quiet receiving of your truth. So speak to us, I pray. Let your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and we'll give you the thanks for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles open at Romans chapter 1, what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse number 24, and I will read from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Please 
Just follow along with me. Romans 1, 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up to vi- unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So in this passage of Scripture, and our outline breaks down very simply because what we see are three specific times, three specific places where the Bible says that God gave them up or gave them over to themselves and to their sinful desires. And, you know, kind of like in baseball, three strikes and you're out. And God does it three times and he completes the story and it's a, it's, it's a serious, serious deal. Now, if you wanted to, you could probably compare these three strikes against man uh, to each of the three parts, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Uh, if you'd like, you could probably also compare them to the three root causes of all sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But what we're going to see, one thing for sure, absolutely clearly in this passage, is that God himself is not the initiator of any rejection of man. Please understand that. What we're going to see is that clearly God obviously is a gentleman. And what he does always is he respects your decision. He gave you free will. And he respects your decision. He always responds to our choices. And so what we're going to see is that God's rejection of man is merely a reciprocal rejection of man's previously rejecting God. And God says, you reject me? Okay, I'll reject you. The Bible talks about repentance in the same way. If we repent of our sins, the Bible says then God repents of the judgment that he was going to give us. And so that's how God behaves. He waits for us to decide what we're going to do, and he responds then to us in kind. And so in today's story, obviously, they're bad things. And we're just studying the Bible as it comes to us. So the first thing that we see that man rejects is truth. And that's in verses 24 and 25. Man rejects truth. What are the things that cause God to give up on us? Okay. So verses 24 and 25. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie. That's the key and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. 
Amen. So obviously verse 24 starts with the word wherefore. It's a continuation of the thoughts that came from verses 22 and 23. We looked at those last week. It talks about how these people are professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so in last week's, those last couple of verses, 23, it says that they changed the glory of God. This time in this verse, we're saying they changed the truth of God. And so when we dealt with that last week, and you can go online and listen to that if you weren't here and you want to listen to that, but we talked a little bit about how these people who profess one thing, they're professors, and we saw a very real modern application of how professors change the glory due to God alone into man and to birds and to animals and to creeping things. And we kind of just talked a little bit about this whole theory of evolution and how it has destroyed society worldwide in the last 150 years. Amazing thing. You ought to go back and listen to it if you didn't have the chance to do that. But when man rejects truth, it says in verse number 24 that God gives them up to uncleanness. He gives them up to uncleanness. And it talks about dishonoring their own bodies. Now further down in the passage, and we'll talk more about it when we get there, um, there, there's, there's a whole section there on sexual sin, okay? So we'll get to that when we get to that. But I just want to remind you of something, this whole dishonoring your bodies. If you took the time, and we're not going to study it, but I have a couple of references for you. In 1 Corinthians 3.17, it talks about if any man defile the temple, that God will destroy him. Okay, and our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to understand, what, is it, what does it take to defile the temple, or how does a man defile himself? And Jesus had this very conversation with people back in Mark chapter 7, and Jesus made it very clear, because they were worried about eating unclean food that was forbidden by the Old Testament, or eating food with, without washing their hands first, or something like that. And while that may be unsanitary, in, in the New Testament context, Jesus is saying, that doesn't defile a man. It's not the things that you take in from outside that defile you. And Jesus went on to talk about, it's the things from your heart, it's the things from within. And he makes a whole list of sins and he talks about gossip and envy and hatred and all these thoughts that come from within that come out. Those are the things that really defile a man. And so what I really want us to see here is this issue of the heart. Again, back in verse 24 of Romans, it says God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Okay? And it says that they changed the truth of God into a lie. Well, where do you suppose that comes from? Where do you suppose the spiritual emphasis that originates that thought comes from? Well, let me define for you what the truth of God really is. In John 17, 17, the Bible defines itself where Jesus is praying and he says to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So what we're going to talk about are people who have decided that they don't really like what God has to say in his word. And so as they wrestle through the consequences and the results of what they're going to do with what God says, maybe the easiest thing to do is just change what he says. And if you change what he says, then maybe I can live with that because I can't seem to live with what God says that he says. This is nothing new. You need to understand that this has happened from the very beginning of time. And the very original story when God created man in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and coming into chapter number 3. And in verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to a character that's called the serpent. We understand him as the devil or Satan. And he approaches Eve 
And it says, The serpent was more subtle in Genesis 3.1 than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And notice the first thing that God records that comes out of the serpent's mouth. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And if you continue to read down in Genesis 3, what the serpent then continues to do is literally change what God said. And, and, he, and God calls the serpent subtle. So the changes aren't going to be necessarily widespread. They're going to be small, but they're going to be uh, significant. And, and the serpent is in the business from his very presentation by the Holy Spirit of changing what God said. And that's a serious deal. So from the very beginning, that was true. Back in the times of the writing of the Bible, it was true. Obviously, it was true here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25. And, and if you looked in 2 Peter chapter 3, which is really, if you, you'd have to fast forward about 30 years past the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 3 and verse 16. And he's referring to the apostle Paul as Peter writes. And he says, also, um, as also in all of his, referring to Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood. So Peter recognizes that Paul's writings are scripture. Peter recognizes that Paul writes about some things that, that require some study. And then he goes on and he talks about it and he says, which they that are, here's the characteristics, unlearned and unstable rest, W-R-E-S-T, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So there's people in the time of Peter that would have rested, and, and, and we use that word today when we talk about wrestling, okay? You go to a wrestling match, and, and literally the idea is to twist or to contort the scriptures, and they do that to their own destruction. In other words, God takes this very, very seriously. I mean, this is a big, big deal, and so it happened from the beginning. It happened at the time of the first century when Christ and the apostles were alive. And you know what? It happens today. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. And, and this is not the subject of the sermon today, but I have to point this out to you because it is so very clear. I gave you just one simple example. And the simple example of how it continues today is in front of you at Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 6, where the Bible clearly says, who, referring to Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, notice the words, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Stop there. Would you agree that Jesus Christ, whether he took on human flesh, whether he was in eternity past, whether he is post-resurrection, that Jesus Christ always throughout his existence did not consider it robbery for him to be equal with God? Would you agree with that? Does that not make sense that Jesus Christ has always been God? He's taken on different forms throughout history. He's presented himself in different ways throughout history. But for Jesus Christ to claim all the fullness of deity, he's not stealing anything that doesn't belong to him in order to make those claims. Is that not clear? That's the message of the Bible, is it not? Well, you know, there's a lot of new translations in the Bible, and they're sold for their ease of reading and all that sort of thing. And in some places very subtly change something that can give the exact opposite meaning. And that's why I chose this verse, because this is one place where it gives the exact opposite meaning. A very popular version of the Bible people read today, the English Standard Version. 
Originally published in 2001 as an upgrade of the old Revised Standard Version from the end of the 19th century. Uh, it's been edited a few times since then. And it's, it's characteristic of many new versions in the English language where it says, for example, who, though in Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, referring to Jesus, notice, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Really? Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something worthy of his grasp? Is that not 180 degrees opposite? Okay, even from Philippians 2.6, because some of you uh, technical theologian types might be thinking, well, in the original language, it might have been written that way. Okay, just, just back up for a second. You can study the original language all you want. Would your sensibilities tell you that, the, that God is trying to communicate to you that Jesus Christ had every right to consider himself God at all times in his history? Or would your sensibilities tell you that there was a time when Jesus would say, you know what, I don't really deserve to be equal with God. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? And so when in Romans it says they changed the truth of God himself, Jesus even in this case, into a lie. I know it's not popular to say that good men who love Jesus and desire a good work up, updating an ancient language are intending to be evil. I'm not trying to say that either. But there's a spiritual force behind this thing that from the very beginning, that was the work of the devil. Through the times of the writings of the Bible, that was the work of the devil. Don't be so naive to think it doesn't continue today. Change the truth of God into a lie. Why is that such a big deal? Well, God's word is holy, it's pure, it's clean, it's righteous. And we could go on and on on that. I don't want to do that today, but simply I just want to say this. Man changes it because man doesn't want to deal with the consequences of what it says as it says it. And so man can continue to live his unrighteous life. Right? We saw last week how men hold the truth, only preserved for you in a King James Bible, by the way, in unrighteousness. And because we're unrighteous and we desire to live our unrighteous life, we don't always like what God says. And what the natural tendency is, is for man to change that rather than changing his behavior, which is God's goal. And so we have verses like at the very end of your entire Bible in Revelation 22, where God makes it very clear that if anybody messes with the book, God's going to mess with you. <laughs> and it's a solemn warning. They change the truth. And then it goes on in Romans and it says they worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Notice that now. It doesn't say that these people rejected the creator. They just worshiped and served the creature more. Do you realize the devil doesn't care if you worship and serve the, cre the creator as long as you worship and serve yourself more? Isn't that subtle? Isn't that a subtle change? And that's his strategy. You can serve the Lord all you want as long as you serve yourself more. You can worship the Lord all you want as long as you worship yourself more. And that's the result of what's going on here. What it does is, is it views man as very large when God views man, as we're reading, as pretty small. Another verse of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. If you've never seen this, this is a good verse for you to be aware of. 
And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it very clear to us that we are not to think of men more than God's word says of them. Don't think of men above what is written of men. You see that? By the way, if you went into an ESV or an NIV, that verse has changed also. You'll not be able to find that truth in that verse. It's very interesting. So when man is viewed as large, is that not a view from the perspective of the serpent? I mean, if the serpent is down here, man looks pretty big, doesn't he? But, but from God's view, man is kind of nothing. And that's how he describes us. And never does he describe it better than in Romans 1, 2, and 3. It's the definitive passage for that. If that view that I just described of us bothers you, you might be tempted to change the truth. Others have been. But the one thing we see in this scripture is is that when man rejects God's word as truth, then God rejects man. God rejects man. The second thing, man rejects nature. Verses 26 and 27. Man rejects nature. For this cause, God gave them up. There it is, the second strike. Unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And it goes on, and likewise also the men. So very clearly, God is telling us that there is a natural order to physical life. Amen? And you go back to the very beginning. Again, when God created everything, he created everything perfect. And he created everything perfectly on purpose and with a purpose. And so when God created man on the sixth day of creation, and it's recorded for you in the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, and in verse number 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And so as soon as man shows up, we see that God created them with the purpose of reproduction. So the primary purpose of the sexual act is to propagate the human race. And the bounds of such an act have to be within a marriage between a man and a woman. That's what God intended. Jesus repeat, You could go into Genesis chapter 2. It's repeated the same way when it gives more detail as to how God created woman out of the rib of Adam, etc. Jesus refers to that story in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. So Jesus is speaking. He says, but from the beginning of the creation, again, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That's what we say when we do weddings, right? That's kind of the prescription that we use when we marry people and so he makes it very clear and this is God's plan so therefore to participate in any 
sexual behavior in any way outside the God-given boundaries of a marriage between a man and a woman is sin. Now, that would include premarital sex. That would include extramarital sex. That would include any other thing into pornography, any of the other things that you can be aware of. They're all out of bounds. Now, in this passage of Scripture, it says that they turned against nature. Man rejects nature. It says God gives them up to vile affections. You know, this, again, this is a 400-year-old version in the English language that we read of the Bible. And the language to us sometimes, well, it sounds pleasant. But let me assure you, vile affections carried a lot of power and meaning. That, that, those are some strong, strong words that are used. This idea of vile affections, literally, I mean, it is the extreme case of violation. And so the word vile itself, for example, literally means to be morally base or impure. If you were to take the time, if you're interested, jot down Daniel 11.21. And in prophetic form, it's going to talk about the coming of the Antichrist at the end times. And it calls the Antichrist this vile person. It's satanic. It says that it's vile. It's unnatural. Again, we saw it's against nature. And so allow me to just make myself very clear According to the scriptures, all homosexual behavior is sin. All homosexual behavior is it's clearly that way. And that's why people who promote homosexuality or practice homosexuality or sympathetic towards homosexuality typically try to change the truth of God into a lie in those places to make room for their behavior that clearly runs contrary to what God says. If you were to go in the Old Testament, and those who don't enjoy this subject don't like to go to the Old Testament, but in Leviticus 18 and verse 22, there's several places. I just picked one. It's very, very clear. It says in Leviticus 18, 22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. And the objectors would say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's the Old Testament, and you Christians really just get on my nerves, because here's what you guys do. You pick and choose your favorite sins from the Old Testament, and you stomp on that and wave your flags and declare how these things are sin, but there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that just don't apply anymore, right? And we look, for example, like at the dietary laws and you're not supposed to eat certain meats and foods and all that sort of thing, and we would agree, and they respected certain days and holidays and the sacrificial system of killing animals. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that doesn't apply anymore, and we would agree, absolutely. So why this one? You just don't like it. No. This one is repeated in the New Testament and confirmed, therefore, for the church to continue to be an error. That's why... Because God said it then, I'm just giving you history. He said it again. Just to make sure that you know that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's still sin. In fact, if you look back in Romans 1 and verse 27, the second part of that verse, men with men working that which is unseemly 
and receiving in themselves the, that recompense of their error, which was meat. Unseemly. Not fit. Unbecoming. Indecent. And it says, receiving in themselves that recompense of, notice, their error. Their error, God calls it. Homosexuality is not a product of nature. It says it's against nature. People who practice homosexual behavior are not born that way. It's against nature. It's not an alternate lifestyle. God says it's an error. And he says it's their error. Do you see that? It's their error. And since it's their error, they will bear the consequences of their error. That's all he's communicating. So the punishment is going to fit the offense. Because he says that they're going to receive in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. M-E-E-T. The King James Bible uses that word meat. It literally means which is suitable, which is appropriate. Remember the original story of Adam and Eve and God gave Eve to Adam and he gave her to him as an help meat. She is to be a helper for her husband, a suitable, appropriate helper meat. That's what the word means. In this case, what we have is the people who are committing this sin are going to receive the recompense. They are going to receive the consequence. They are going to receive the judgment, which is proper, which is suitable, which is meat. So ultimately, there's going to be an ultimate judgment. There's an ultimate judgment that will occur. There will be zero exceptions to this judgment. God God will punish all rejectors by requiring them to live in eternity without him. That's hell. So everybody that rejects him in any way for sure, it's, it's across the board. That's the ultimate judgment. But there's also a temporal judgment. And in the temporal judgment, and this is where it gets a little tricky, there's some exceptions. And we think, what? That's weird. That doesn't make sense. I mean, God is God, and He's not a respecter of persons, and why do some get judged and some don't, and what is that all about? Well, before we even talk about that, let me just draw your attention to a principle of Scripture that you may not be aware of. It's 1 Timothy 5 and verse 24. This is a great verse of Scripture you ought to be aware of. 1 Timothy 5, 24 says, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. In other words, look, we're all sinners, okay? We all blow it. We all do dumb things, and there's various degrees and ways that we do it. The principle is this. Some of us will have our sin judged here and now in a very real, tangible way, and others won't. But if there are those who do not have their sin judged here and now in a real, tangible way, God says, you know what, Their judgment follows after. In other words, there's no getting away with it. It's going to be dealt with. 
but some will be placed on display and really the goal is to scare everybody else away from doing it. <laughs> I heard a guy say one time and I liked it. It really the principle comes out of the book of Ecclesiastes and it's this. Sin would have fewer takers if the consequences were immediate. Right? Sin would have fewer takers if the consequences of the sin occurred immediately when you did it. And you saw people dropping like flies every time they did something, you'd be like, man, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And that's just true. So in this particular case, God will punish this particular sin, right, with some appropriate judgment here and now. And since it is a vile sexual sin, the punishment would have to be something devastating and related to homosexual activity. In fact, the verse says that men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense. Can you think of what that might be? I can. Well, you know, it's a political hot topic. It's all over the news. It's talked about all the time. It's in the media. Um, I, I, listen, I want you to know, truly, if you don't come here regularly, you just happen to wander in today and you're thinking, man, this is, this is a crazy day in this church. <laughs> this is not my soapbox. This is not my deal where I just get up and this is the thing I talk about all the time. We are a church that studies the scripture expositionally. We take it verse by verse as it comes. This week, here it comes. And so we're going to deal with it. And we're going to understand what God says in the context. And next week we'll be done and we'll go on to something else. Last week we were on something different. But we study the Bible as God gives it, as our lives should receive whatever God has. Amen? So this is not a political issue with me. This is not my favorite thing to jump up and down and talk about. It is not. It's just another thing God talks about, and here we are, so we're not going to run from it. You understand? But there is an ever-growing population of people that boldly and proudly proclaim their homosexuality in our society, in our world. They've gained a lot of support in the media. They've gained a lot of support in legislature. It's become intolerable for people to speak against that lifestyle publicly. And Christian people are up in arms what are you supposed to do well can I recommend to you that one thing you absolutely should do is vote your conscience against any proposed legislature that promotes what God calls abomination does that not make sense I mean you have a constitutional right to vote and when that opportunity comes up If you don't get up and go to the polls and cast your ballot and then the legislature passes because the other folks are going to vote, well, you know, kick yourself around the yard. It's your fault. In this last year, I want you to know, I, I have signed up to assist an organization that's called Citizens for Community Values. 
If you want to look at their website, it's ccv.org. Just that simple. And, and literally is just what it sounds like. Citizens for Community Values. It's a Christian-based organization tied together with other organizations similar, like Focus on the Family and stuff like that. And what they do and what we want to do is just make people aware of coming legislation in the state of Ohio and to encourage them to vote, to just show up. As a result of my willing involvement, I agreed to send out letters to all of the area churches that are in our voting district, and we sent out 98 letters, 98 different churches, and asked them a number of things just to ask them if they would be interested in promoting this cause in front of their people or not. And we literally asked them for, to respond, respond to us with, I'm building a database, with one, the answer to one question. Do you and your church support only natural marriage or do you support same-sex marriage? I sent that out in early December. And to date, after 98 letters were sent out, I've only received 10 responses. One of them supports same-sex marriage. I'm just saying to you, and maybe they're just getting around to it yet, I don't know. I'm just saying to you that it's a big deal in the political world in which we live right now. And, and it's easy to get all fired up about that, okay? But before you get all crazed about this one issue, what I want you to do, and I want to try and reel you in with, with a perspective check, okay? And the first perspective check I want to reel you in with is, is that this is just a sign of the times. It's just a sign of the times in which we live. In Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, it says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Then it describes it. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It goes on in verses 28 and 29. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So generally speaking, the message given in Noah and in Lot, okay, as it was then, so shall it be when Jesus is about to come back. You want to know what it's going to be like when Jesus is about to come back? Go back and study what it was like back in the days of Noah. Go back and study what it was like in the days of Lot, because God is giving you this tip. When those circumstances begin to repeat again in the future, you will know that the days of the coming of the Son of Man are near. That's what he's trying to tell us. The general statement that's made in that passage is, basically, they ate, they drank, they slept, they married, they went and they planted and they built it. In other words, they were living normal daily lives. And they were oblivious to the fact that the judgment that was going to wipe them all out, destruction, was going to happen that very day. Just oblivious to it. Just living their normal lives. In Luke, it doesn't really go into detail about what those things were that were going on in those days. We'll see that in just a second. But the context is clearly the second coming. Again, verse 30 in Luke. For thus, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You could go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, and I'll not read that for you. I guess it'll probably pop up on the screen, but basically it's the same exact story, just repeated by Peter. Again referring to Noah, again referring to Lot, and the context again is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate 
judgment of the wicked. And how people just don't get it. Noah and Lot stand as those two examples. So what was it all about in the days of Noah and the days of Lot? Well, the days of Lot are defined for you in Genesis chapter 19, and you can go back and read that. But he lived in a place called Sodom and the neighboring city Gomorrah. And most of you are probably familiar that the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah were, were, were rife with rampant homosexual behavior. And the story starts in Genesis 19 where it says Lot sat in the gate at Sodom, meaning he was in a position of leadership and authority. It's crazy. And there came two men. They were actually angels, but they appear as men, and they come to Lot, and Lot begs them, please spend the night with me in my house. And how all that plays out in the Old Testament with angels visiting you, I'm not sure I know, but they appeared as men. They showed up. Lot knew who they were. He brings them to his house. The men of Sodom get whiff of the fact, hey, there's a couple of new guys in town. And they burn in their hearts and lust toward these new men and they desperately, they're beating on the doors of the house of Lot saying, bring these men out to us so that we can have our way with them. And Lot has lost his mind and he's protecting his guests, but he's like, oh men, don't do so wickedly, but rather, I got a couple of daughters, take them. Crazy. And the angels ultimately don't need Lot's help, and they protect themselves, and they pull Lot. These guys are going to cause violence on Lot. They pull Lot back in the house, slam the door shut, and the angels miraculously cause all these men to go blind. And the Bible said that these blind men, they wearied themselves looking for the door so that they could still find these men. Crazy. Rampant sexual perversion and violence. What about the days of Noah? Well, if you went back to Genesis 6, you will also find that there's a crazy story where there's somebody who's called the sons of God and they took of them wives of the daughters of men and, and, and they had sexual relation with them and the result of that union was a weird hybrid offspring that were giants in the earth. Some perverse sexual thing was going on that caused God to say, this is messed up, I'm judging everybody. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah and his family get out. Perverse sexual sin and violence. And so God is trying to tell us something. And you need to understand, the fact that the gay rights activists are emboldened and gaining momentum in society although troubling to our sensibilities, is prophesied. It's prophesied. And you should vote. I, I do. But you should also know that in the long run, you won't win the vote. Now, I'm still going to vote. Because in the short run, we might. But in the long run, you won't. Has it ever occurred to you that in these issues, like on same-sex marriage, when it's brought, it's already been brought up in Ohio. We already voted it down. It's going to come up again, I think, this, in this year. When these things come up and are voted down, they just appear on the ballot again. And they'll continue to appear on the ballot until they're passed. And once they're passed, you know what will never happen again? They'll never appear on the ballot again. Because our society's messed up. So don't get too freaked out about it. Just know 
We're near the end, y'all. We're near the end. Jesus is coming soon. That's your first perspective check. Your second perspective check is ranking sin. Y'all really need to remember that before the Lord, all sin is sin. All sin is sin, and it is wicked. And all sin is forgivable. Please do not find yourself falling prey to hating one particular sin while maybe engaging yourself in another. How, what an outrage! Gay rights! While the people who say outrage may themselves be engaging in heterosexual sin. How about that? That's an outrage. It's all sin. And it's funny because Christian people do, they tend to pick their favorite politically charged sin and get all fired up about it. And really the two that stand out to me anyway as the most charged issues that Christians get all fired up about is the issue of homosexuality and it's the issue of Muslims and Arabs and terrorists. And for some reason, those two categories, although greatly different from one another, in our minds, we, we think of it politically rather than biblically. And we don't pray for the salvation of their souls and accept them as human beings who are just lost and need Jesus Christ. But because they're involved in a particular sin that is troubling to us, we don't want anything to do with them. We would rejoice in their destruction. And that's wicked. That's wicked. So please understand what God calls sin and understand that he desires to forgive. And, and really, why, why would you rank one sin as worse than another? Just because you don't do it? Listen, whenever man rejects God's natural plan for sexual activity, God rejects that man. All right, the last thing. Man rejects God. His very existence. Verse number 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. In the remaining time, we're going to look quickly at a long list of sin. Okay? And I love the way God chooses to refer to these things. He says, you know, these things are... They're not convenient. <laughs> you know, that's, that's very inconvenient that you do that. <laughs> because now, if I may speak on behalf of the Lord, now I have to judge you. Now I have to judge you. So when man gets tired of fighting against God's word, because you can't win, or when man gets tired of fighting against nature itself, which, by the way, you can't win that either. The only thing that's left is, well, I'll just get rid of God. I mean, it just bothers me. Let's just get rid of him altogether and let's just be done with it. And, and that's what's next. And that's what we see. It says, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Remember, again, I mentioned earlier, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. These people have a knowledge of God. 
but they just said, it bothers me. I got to, I've got to get rid of my knowledge of God. We saw last week in John chapter 1 where Jesus is that light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. Every man has a knowledge of God, if nothing else, just through his creation and nature. And so it says that God gave them over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind. What does that mean, reprobate? Well, let's just break it down. Re probate. Probation. When a guy's put on probation, he has been found guilty of doing something, and he's punished for a time, and then he's given a little, little freedom, and he's on probation, but he's being watched. If while on probation you blow it, they bring you back to the jail, okay? And maybe you can get put on probation again. So a reprobate mind is a mind that already has proven itself a failure, has been judged but yet given a little space and is now failing again and is put on probation again, if you will. It's a reprobate mind. It's a continual failure. So what we see is the list, and and I just referred to it as the roll call of depravity. Man is depraved, we're sinful, we're wicked, and, and in some form... These things exist in us. Consider yourself, probably not all of them, but certainly some things on this list apply to every single one of us. And the general category, all unrighteousness, again, if you went back to Romans 1.18, it is the unrighteousness of man that brings the wrath of God. So let's just look at the list and make sure we understand what the words mean. Fornication, any sexual behavior outside of a marriage between a man and a woman wickedness okay well maybe if you don't behave in outward wicked deeds maybe you have wicked thoughts i don't know covetousness have you ever wanted anything that didn't belong to you maliciousness you ever want to get back at somebody for what they did to you full of envy jealous of others Maybe you're jealous of their intelligence, good looks, the stuff they got, the friends they have. Murder. Off the hook on that one. Well, Jesus said if you're angry with your brother without a cause, it's murder in your heart. Debate. By the way, angry with your brother without a cause is far too rampant, if I can say. Debate. Ever argue with the Lord? Deceit. You ever been dishonest in word or in action? Malignity. That's just having a rotten attitude. Bad disposition. Whisperers, backbiters. Various degrees of gossip. You ever talk about other people that way? Haters of God. God makes it clear. You either love me or you hate me. There's no middle ground. Despiteful. You turn up your nose at a thing or a person because you despise him or despise it. Proud. Boasters. Letting other people know how good you are above others. Inventors of evil things. Okay, well maybe 
we're not all bright enough to invent our own evil things. Maybe our friend invented it and we just follow him. Disobedient to parents. I know, guys, you were just waiting for that one. Sorry. Can I just say to the young people seriously, though, and we had a great testimony at baptism, too, from Chase. This is a, this is a vile list, right? It's a vile list. And in the list, God chose to put disobedient to parents at the same level with all these other things. Just something to think about. It, it really is something that's serious because at the core of disobedience to authority, any authority, by the way, and your parents are your authority as long as you're minors, at, at the core of that is rebellion. And what you do is you begin to develop a characteristic of rebelling against your authority to the point where you will ultimately rebel against God's authority. And that's why it's important. That's why it's important. Listen, I'm your friend. I'm trying to help you. Without understanding. Guilty. I mean, how many of us could understand things that God desires of us and we just don't? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Bible. We could know all things, but we don't. Covenant breakers. You ever give your word and then not do it? Without natural affection. We've already talked about that. Implacable. You can't be pleased. Unpleasable might be another way to say that, okay? Nobody can please you. You're stubborn. You're unbending. Unmerciful. Not willing to give somebody else the break that God gave you. You know what, y'all? That's broken. That list right there, that's, that's huma- humanity, and it's broken, just like that mirror. That's messed up. It's the fruit of a mind that's fallen from its intended use. And you say, I don't do all those things. Great, I'm thrilled to hear it. You probably do some of them, like we all do. But look at verse 32. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So there's a level of pride that goes with it, but I want to focus on that, have pleasure in them that do them. That means that while you may not necessarily participate in some of the activities on that list, you might turn on the TV and watch TV shows and movies where they do the things on that list and you enjoy watching them. Think about this. You're, you who are adults and own your own homes and have your own television that you paid your money for, you turn that thing on and a lot of people will allow shows on their television screen of behavior that if real human beings walked into your living room and behaved like the people on the TV screen behave, you'd be furious. You'd throw them out of your house like that. But somehow, because they're on a flat screen, it's okay. And so you may or you may not actually do those things, but if you have pleasure in others who are doing them, it's kind of in the same category. Just something to think about. Just something to think about. So we broke this down into three different areas. Rejecting God's truth. Well, we talked about it last week. There's something called the specific revelation of God. It's God's word. 
That's what they're rejecting. They're rejecting God's specific revelation of himself. And then we talked about rejecting nature. And we saw last week that is also, that is God's general revelation of himself. So now you've rejected God's general revelation and God's specific revelation. So what's left? Basically, you've rejected God. And that's our third point. It's the end game of the previous two. And God says, hey, this is a serious deal. And so I just want to leave you with Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Yeah, we're broken. Guilty, we're all broken. But God will restore. You've rejected him, he will reject you. You repent of your sins, he will repent of his judgments. So now it's our chance to respond. Let's all pray together.